Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done. We all gather this afternoon here, coming from different stories. Some of us are struggling. Some of us are hurting. Some of us are dealing with severe trauma and abuse. Lord, would you provide the hope and the life and the light that you promise in your word, in your Bible, that we would understand it, that we'd come together as a community transformed, following God alone. And as we read and try to understand chapters 13 and 14 here in Genesis, would you be our guide? Not my own heart, not my own mind, not my own understanding, but you, O Father. your name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Genesis, and Genesis means beginnings. And so we are at the beginning. We're looking at the beginnings of the world. That's what Genesis talks about. In the beginning there was God. And he created the heavens and the earth. Everything. All the mountains, all the oceans, all the lakes. Us. The first two people he created were Adam and Eve. And they lived in this paradise with God. They were in a perfect, harmonious relationship with God. They spoke with him. And he spoke with them. And there was a tree in the middle of this garden that they were not allowed to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they decided to eat it, rebelling against God's rule, rebelling against God. And the story of Genesis is this continual corruption and rebellion of the world. So we have Adam and Eve. They rebelled. They were kicked out of the garden. They had children, and their children had children. Generations after generation. The world was being corrupted and was corrupt. And they were rebelling against a good God. Their creator God. And God decided, I'm going to start over again. I'm going to save this one family. Noah and his family. They're going to build a boat. They're going to put animals on this boat. I'm going to start all over again. Do a hard reset. And this is what happened. This is what happened. There was a global flood. Noah was... Saved by making this boat. And the flood subsided, and the people started to inhabit the lands again. But the people began to be corrupt again and again and rebel against God's good order and good word. And we find them in this place. It's the story of the Tower of Babel, where these people, they had one language, they were one people grouped together. And in the beginning, God said, I want you to bless the world. I want you to inhabit the world. I want you to go throughout the world and tell people about me, to love people, to take care of the land. I want you to bless the world. But at the Tower of Babel, they decided to be just one group, stay put, build this tower up into the heavens so that people would see them as great. But since the beginning, God had wanted himself to be known. Not the glory of any other God. For there are no other gods. I stand here before you with this audacious claim that Allah is no God. That Buddha is not a God. That the raven is not a God. But there is one God and he alone is found in this word. And he is the one who created all of us. He is the one who created the world. And whatever he says is for our human flourishing and for his fame. So we have the Tower of Babel, and God scatters this people. He confuses their languages. 
and they are scattered throughout the world. And this is kind of the first part of Genesis. It's this downward spiral of humanity. Thanks, Patrick. This downward spiral of humanity that they continue to rebel against this good God. And it's the story of the world. It's the story of all of us and how we seek our own ways. And now we're coming a bit more focused. Genesis is now focusing on a man named Abram. This man named Abram, who is like many of us. He's a mix of self-centered reliance and a trust in God. When God scattered the people of Babel, we're seeing that God is protecting this genealogy because out of this genealogy would become the perfect king, would come the perfect savior. And so we're following this genealogy and part of that genealogy is now Abram. We're reading about Abram. When Abram came on the scene, there was a great famine in the land so he had to go into a place called Egypt. And so in Egypt, he came with his wife and they're looking for food and his wife was very beautiful, the Bible describes her, very beautiful. And the people are going to want to be with Abram's wife. And the prince, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was one of those people. And so, so Abram, being self-centered, selfish, looking out for number one, he says, he's thinking, okay, I know people are going to want to have you wife because you're so beautiful. And they're going to want to kill me because you're my wife. But here's the thing. If we just say that you're my sister, we're all good. We're all good. Meaning, I'm, I'm, I'm going to live. This is good. I'm looking out for number one. And this was, this was Abram's story. And so he tells people that she's my sister. They take her. And, and Pharaoh gives him many riches. And Abram becomes very, very rich. Right, Audrey? Right, Emmy? So as we read about Abram, it helps to understand our own hearts. He's this, he's this mixture of self-reliance and, and faith in God. And yes, because he gave his wife, his wife, we know he's his wife, she's his wife, to the king of Egypt, he became very rich that the leaders of Egypt gave him lots of gold and silver and animals. We know he's super rich because he was given female donkeys. Now that's not a huge, hugely impressive present if I give you a female donkey today. You're probably going to be like, where's the receipt and why do I have this donkey? But back in the day, if you're given a female donkey, this was the transportation of the rich. This donkey was like a Cadillac. It was like a BMW. It was like a Lexus. So if you had a female donkey, hey, this guy's coming for money. Like, check it out, Abram. I got my donkey. He's got a bunch of donkeys. And not only did he have female donkeys, he had camels. Yes, camels. So camels, they were the transportation of not just the rich, but of the super rich. So if you had a camel, if you roll in here with a camel, I'm thinking you got to get that thing out of here. But back then, if you had a camel, it's because you were super rich. That thing is like the Ferrari or the Lamborghini of its time. So, so Abram is rich because he gave his wife away, lying that she was his sister. He was just selfish looking out for number one. 
But things didn't turn out good for Pharaoh. And God actually plagued Pharaoh because Abram lied about his wife being his sister. And we read in Genesis 12, the previous chapter, verse 17 to 20. This is what it says, starting verse 17 in in chapter 12. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them. And he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all his possessions. So Abram and his wife, they're kicked out of Egypt. And this is where we're picking up in chapter 13. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 13. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev, along with his wife and Lot, Lot's his nephew, and all they owned. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goat, herds of cattle and many tents. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. And so here they are, they're kicked out of Egypt. They have all this cattle, they have all these livestock, just got stinky camels, stinky female donkeys, stinky people. And they're just wandering, and they need, they need supplies. They need food for their livestock. They need food and shelter for themselves. Now they're wandering the land. Where are they going to go? They're now out of Egypt. And Abram, he wanted to avoid conflict with his nephew, so he's super rich, Abram. Lot, his nephew, is super rich. Now they're in this land. Verse 8. Finally, Abram said to Lot, Let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. So this is the picture. Abram and Lot, they're in the place called Bethel. They're really high up in this, in this mountain. They're kind of looking over the land. And Abram is talking to... Okay, pause. Pause one second. Audrey, you're not going to like this, but... Thanks, Nana. So this is the picture. You have, you have Abram and Lot. They're on top of this high hill, and they're looking at the lands, and they're thinking, okay, what are we going to do here? So Abram... You know, we just read a story of him giving his wife away because he's so selfish, self-centered... But he says, Lot, let's, let's not let this divide us. Which land do you want? Which part of the land do you want? Do you want the land on the left or the right? Whichever one you take, I'll take the leftovers. This is, this is very unselfish now. His character has changed a little bit. This is very unlike how I act. Like when I make um, Ichiban, like noodles... I like, I like to make that in secret so I don't have to share with anybody. <laughs> like even today, I waited for the kids to go in the bath and Caitlin was bathing them and I'm making itchy band on mine because I don't like to share. <laughs> but here's Abram. He's saying, Lot, what, you can have the best land. You can have the best land. And this is what, this is what it re- or writes. 
Verse 10, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom, settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. So Lot, so Abram gives this wonderful invitation. Hey, you can have any land you want. And what does Lot do? He takes the best land. He takes it. So Lot chose to settle in the area of the Jordan Valley, uh, near this place called Sodom and Gomorrah, because it was known for its fertility. It was very lush in water and and, um, and vegetation. So that's what Lot took. He took the best part of the land. But it was also known for its moral corruption. Verse 13, it says, But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. So Lot was selfish. And this is the story of all of us. That we want what's best for ourselves. And so Lot made this choice. And it wasn't the choice that led Lot's, Lot, Lot's heart astray. It wasn't the choice that led his heart astray. Is that his heart was already astray and it was demonstrated by the choice. So his heart was already corrupted. And the writer of Genesis is trying to show the difference between Lot and Abram at this time. Lot chose based on what he saw. He chose by sight and his selfishness alone. Where Abram, he acted in faith in a promise that God made him. Abram risks it all because he's trusting. He's putting in faith, his faith in a promise that God made to him. In the first verse of chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. So this is the land they're at. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. How you understand the entire book of Genesis is it comes down to this verse right here. We saw the first part. The whole world has become corrupt. And you're thinking, how is this going to get fixed? And then you read about this person, Abram, and God saying this promise, basically saying, I'm going to restore this. And I'm going to use you, Abram. I'm going to make a great name out of you. Your descendants will bless the world. I'm going to give you a great land. This is the promise. And so as you read the rest of Genesis, you have to keep this promise in mind. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt and all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. This is how you understand the entire book of Genesis. And so Abram, he acted in faith when he said, Lot, you can have any of this land. Because he knew, even if he gave away the land a thousand times, it would still go to his descendants because he had faith in God's promise. And so right here, when, when Abram is acting selfless, he's fulfilling this new principle, this New Testament principle of love. It's written in a book called Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Let 
each of you, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. When you hear that, does your life look like that? Whose interests do you look out for primarily? And if you're honest, and if I'm honest, I look out for me. I look out for me. Yes, I have kids. Yes, I have family. Yes, I have a wife. But my heart is selfish at its core. At birth, it is wicked, desperately wicked. And so in a world that tells you you were born a blank slate, you were born good, this stands in a direct contradiction and contrast to what the world teaches. No, you were not born good. You were born evil, corrupt, and everything you do is that. It's looking out for number one. So Abram, he's being, he's being selfless here. And what changed? He went from this, this calculating, self-serving coward in Egypt, giving his wife away, and now he's, he's giving the best piece of the land to his nephew. It's because of faith that he was able to do this. Because faith means that we live and we walk by, not by what we see, but by what we know is true of God. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's written in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. We don't walk by how much money is in our bank account. We don't walk and trust alone in the fact that we have a job. We don't walk and trust and put our faith or hope in our country or our government or our church. We put our hope in God alone. And that's what Abram is doing. And that's what the Bible is calling us to do. It's calling you to do. That we are to walk by faith. That we are to trust in God's promises and not in our own strength. And so if you've, if you've been a Christian any time at all, maybe you've heard, maybe you've told others, oh, it's just because you lack faith that this has happened to you. Maybe it's just because you lack faith that your marriage isn't working. Maybe you just lack faith, that's why your kid is sick. Maybe you just lack faith, that's why you're in debt. And they, and they place this, this emphasis on your faith, that you need to increase your faith. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's just a horrible, confusing, scary, condemning teaching. We're not to increase our faith by our own strength. But we're to place the little faith that we have in the right object. That the little faith that we have, we have to put it in the right object. Because I can be standing on top of a thousand foot building and think, I have faith that when I jump to the ground, I will land and walk away and go to Starbucks and get a tea and walk away. I have a lot of faith in that. But that doesn't mean anything. Your faith has to be in the right object. In the right object. And that object is God and His promises, His unfailing love, His goodness, His purity, His eternality. In God is where we put our faith. So it continues in verse 14. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, 
Look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south and east and west. I'm giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I'm giving it to you. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. There he built another altar to the Lord. We can see the promise of God that was made to Abram, that I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families of the earth will, earth will be blessed through you. We can see that promise. It's starting to take shape now. What land are you talking about, God? This is the land right here. You will be the father of a great nation. You will inhabit this rich land. The promise is becoming fulfilled. And as we go into verse four, or chapter 14, we're reading about this war that's erupting in this region. There's many kings. There's nine different kings in this region. And war is breaking out. Tell, chapter 14 tells us about these kings and these names. King Amraphel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Elisar, King Keterolamer of Elam, great baby names by the way, write them down, and King Tidal of Golem fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Berisha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, King Shemember of Ziboim, and the King of Bela, also called Zoar. So the writer of Genesis is going through this historical account of these kings that were at war, and there's this war breaking out in this land. It's describing these kings that rebelled against another king. And about this king, Kudrolamer, who reigned for 12 years in the lands they conquered. And as these wars are breaking out, Lot is caught up in this. Abram's nephew. Verse 12, chapter 14. They also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom, and carried off everything he owned. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized 318 trained men who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Keterolamer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Keterolamer's army fled, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken. And he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. How did, how did Abram go from this coward giving his wife away, saying, just, just say you're, you're my sister so I don't die? How did he become so courageous all of a sudden? He had 318 trained men from his household to make war with this army. How... What is going on here? It was his faith. It was his faith in God's promises. He believed in God's word that the land would go to his descendants. And he knew that God was with him. It didn't matter how big his army was. It didn't matter how smart he was. It didn't matter how, much, how many female donkeys and Ferraris and Lamborghinis he had. He walked with God. And nothing was going to stop God from fulfilling his promise. He's using a fool in Abram, an average person, to fulfill 
His promises and blessing the world. God uses us. Have you thought about that? Why does God even consider us at all? He created the galaxies. He created the mountains. He created the oceans and the lakes. And every creature, He made every one of you. Knows you by name, counts every hair on your head. And it didn't cause Him to sweat a bit. And He says, I love you. And I want you in my family. And I'll do whatever it takes to have you in my family. Whatever it takes. What's it going to cost me, God is asking, to have you in my family? To forgive you. To adopt you when nobody wanted you. Even though you've committed high crimes against a perfect and good God. I'll do whatever it takes to have you in my family. And this is what Abram did. He sent his men to rescue his nephew. And he won. Verse 17, after Abram returned from his victory over Kedorlaomer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. And Melchizedek, Melchizedek, that name means king of righteousness, so king of good, right living. So it spoke of his character. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priests of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then, gave, then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. This looks back to the promise. Verses 1 to 3 in chapter 12. God promised that Abram would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And now he's blessing Melchizedek. So here's another fulfillment. We're seeing the promise rolled out. Melchizedek blesses Abram, one of the families of the earth. And we're seeing God at work. In war, in captivity, in division. Lot was lost and hopeless and shame. In his selfishness and his cowardliness, he took this land, he knew it was corrupt. He took the land for himself. He was off in his sin and his shame. But Abram came and rescued him. That's grace. That's unconditional love. Because we were those, like Lot, that were off in our sin, in our shame. And we were rescued by the one who left his kingdom, who stepped down from his throne in heaven to rescue you, that one is Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, 2,000 years ago, stepped out of his royal throne to forgive you, to adopt you into his family at every cost to himself. He courageously defeated our enemies. He forgave us of our sin. The Bible describes death as the final enemy. Death is an enemy. Death is not good. Death is a part of the curse. In a world today that says death is beautiful and a part of life, it is erroneous. 
Death is not good. It is evil. It is a curse. But Jesus Christ defeated that. 2,000 years ago, He hung on a cross. He became our sin. He was guilty of adultery, of lying, of stealing. He became sin. God's own Son became our payment that we could be held innocent before God. What did we do to deserve that? Nothing. That's unconditional love. That is grace. And Abram is showing grace to Lot. He rescued him. He saved him. Jesus Christ saves us. He's offering a hand to you, to all of us. It says, come home, come to me. I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth. I'm the God who's bringing this fulfillment of this promise. As we're reading in Genesis in 13 and 14, we're wondering, does this promise get fulfilled? We're not, it's not clear now. But that's the story of the whole Bible. The Bible is one single story showing how this promise is fulfilled, how this genealogy is fulfilled, how God protects these descendants of Abram until one person comes to rescue us from hell. If you flip to Matthew, it's a book in the Bible, the very first chapter of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, we read of a descendant. It opens up with a genealogy. The title in my Bible says, The Ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the Rescuer. It says this, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abram becomes Abraham in chapter 17. Spoiler alert. He becomes Abraham. God gives him a new name. Right here, it says, The descendants of Jesus. Does God protect the genealogy? Yes. How do we know that? Jesus Christ was born to forgive us our sin. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ has conquered the grave for you and for me. And by placing your faith in that, you are born again, you are changed. That your desires are not constantly selfish, but how do I now please God and how do I look out for the good of others? I want to leave you with one application as we close out this message. One thing. You are to place your faith, what little faith you have, in in God's promises. So we're remembering. Abram was remembering the promise. That he would go to a land that God will show him. He will be made into a great nation. God says, I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of earth will be blessed through you. Abram trusted in that promise. These are three promises I want you to cling on to. If you're a Christian here, 
if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, his forgiveness of sin, dying on the cross, being buried for three days, rising from the dead, that you are invincibly loved, dear Christian. That nothing can separate God's love from you. A writer in the New Testament is Paul. He wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. He says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is an amazing truth. Because we screw up. We screw up. I screw up. Daily. Yet God has already forgiven. By placing your faith in Jesus, those are forgiven. And you are transformed to be like Him. Nothing can separate His love from you. You are invincibly loved. Second promise. That God loves you and it's all of grace. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, He, Jesus Christ, remains faithful. So when we stumble, so when we don't love our wives the way we should, we don't treat others the way we should, we don't treat our children the way we should, if we fall asleep during a sh- sermons the way we shouldn't, <laughs> He is faithful that we are faithless. That is grace. You bring nothing to your salvation except your sin. Why do you love me, God? Have you ever asked that? Why do you love me? His answer is, it's because I love you. It's not because you drive a Ferrari. It's not because you're a famous politician. It's not because you have great athletic ability. It's not because you have a brilliant mind. It's unconditional and it's all of grace. God says, I love you because I love you. Period. Last promise. If you're sitting here, you don't know who Jesus is. is this, if this is the first time you've ever heard the Bible open or read, this promise is for you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me read that again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there are no other lords. Jesus Christ is alone the Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You will have an irrevocable entrance into heaven. You will feast with God in his kingdom. There's a room for you in his home. Your sins are forgiven. Full stop. You will be saved. This is a promise. And God cannot break His promises. And this is why I put great hope in the living God. God is not dead. Nietzsche, a famous German philosopher, made that phrase famous. Nietzsche is dead. But even he could have been forgiven if he placed his faith in God. God is not dead. He's alive. He didn't stay in the grave. And he's asking us to join him in his story and fulfilling his promise of blessing the world. 
This is our job as we sit here. Whatever your context is, wherever you live, whoever you know, that you would place your faith in Jesus and that you would be a blessing in your context and that we would see the goodness of God transform not only our city, not only our territory, but the world. That is a crazy goal. But I have faith it's not up to us. And I'm glad it's not up to us because we couldn't even play a video without muting Franklin Graham. God is perfect. God is the one who's in control. God is the one who walks by our side. And God alone will fulfill His promise for His own glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come here, some confused, some self-righteous, but Father, would you humble us, knowing that you are a promise-keeping God and that you love us invincibly. And wherever we are in our story, Father, we know that your arms are open wide to accept us into your family because of what you've done. This is the gospel. This is good news. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.